Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 70 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. are you and what do you do i'm wiley gelber and i'm the bass player of the band dawes hey i'm super excited uh to to meet you and and to speak with you for sure um i first actually heard about you through q prime management which is the same people who manage metallica but i don't think you're managed by them anymore are you yeah not uh as of recently we are not anymore but we had a great time with them for it was it was longer than my memory lets me think it was. I think we were with them for, you know, five, six, seven years or something, maybe. Yeah, I was doing some stuff on another side professionally with Q Prime and your name, the, the band's name kept, kept coming up. Nothing ever manifested from it. But uh, that's where I've, I first, I think, heard heard about you guys. Um, cool. and, and I'm going to blow some smoke up your butt. So, so I hope you're good for I hope you're good with this. I'm sitting down, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I really think that all your favorite bands as a song may be the perfect song ever written. <laughs> <laughs> wow, thanks, man. Um, it's one of those songs that, you know, I often get asked, like, what's your desert island? What would be the one song? <laughs> and there's something about that song every time I hear it that, like, gives me pause. The, the lyrics are, are so introspective. Um, it makes me think of sort of people and bands. and it's one of those songs that makes me realize actually how much I love music and how much a song can take you from where you're feeling to where you need to be. So I'm wondering, because the song's about five years old, if you could, one, reflect on that tune for me, just indulge me a little bit. And also, does that song make you feel that way? Or are you kind of done with it because it was such a big song? <laughs> no, I think that, well, in terms of the song's origin, I know that it was written by Taylor f- kind of for uh, – a friend of his who was just like a who was younger than him at the time and was just kind of finally starting to like you know get into real life kind of stuff and f- learning about great music and just kind of like about to take that next step into their adulthood pretty much and so it was es- essentially what you were saying it's just this kind of nostalgic song for just like getting ready for it and how much you can enjoy all the little aspects of your life and then in terms of how we enjoy playing it still and how it hits us. I mean, it definitely still does that for us. We generally end every show with it and it just goes right at the, as opposed to every other song, which could appear at any point in the set list, any night, that one generally, I'd say 99% of the time ends a show last song ever. And so, cause it's kind of so short and sweet and everyone's kind of just at the pinnacle of the whole show. It, it does still have that, effect on us i feel like and on the audience which is cool it's nice to kind of like i i don't personally come in with the bass part until about like halfway through that song so i can just kind of scan the audience and kind of like get that same look that you're kind of describing on other people's faces which is really nice always you know just like wide-eyed like i love music i love this band you know whatever they're thinking at that exact moment and it's that song really tends to bring it out in people so when 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 i think of the song I, I think of the band The Who, for me, and I don't. I, don't, I mean, sure. I, I kind of know why, but I don't know why because there's so many <laughs> bands that I love that I'm a part of. Is there like one band when you even he- just read the the song title that it triggers in your brain? 
Ooh, I don't know. I mean, I think weirdly I, I, it doesn't. And I think weirdly for me, when I hear that song, I, I, I'm less thinking about it in terms of myself and always kind of thinking about it in terms of the other people that are listening to it. You know what I mean? So I'm, it's like, I, I can't say that I've ever had that thought about my band. I came to terms a long time ago that most of my favorite bands are not together anymore. You know what I mean? And then, but I feel like I kind of get to, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what band I think of when I hear it. I just kind of like to think about like, it's like the only time my music taste becomes like unjudgmental or something. I just think about like, wow, everyone's got a favorite band and that's awesome. You know what I mean? Like I might think they're terrible, but this guy loves them and that's great. You know? Yeah. It's funny. Cause I mean, although they still play, when I think of it, I think of them more like like last well, one of the last concerts, like back in the early '80s. Sure. <laughs> but, but but my brain, it's like you 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 are like that word nostalgia is is such a powerful word in our society and culture today, and I think that's part of the triggers of the lyrics and the way the song works is it does. I mean, it's such a warm place to go to be nostalgic. It's such a powerful sure. theme in music, right? Of course. It's unbelievable. So we're here to talk about you as, as a bass player, great musician as well, for sure. Um, and so you look, what do I do? Uh, I, I love the band. I love your playing. So I, I, I do my sort of like, so who is Wiley? And I go online and I say, and I basically came up with uh, almost nothing. So, <laughs> so, I, so is that by design that you're such a mystery as an individual? Um, I mean, I think that I've always been, I happen to be one of these guys just forever who was never on social media or any of that kind of stuff. So I think that definitely kind of just helps initially, you know, just there, there's less of a, like a, a breadcrumb trail to me on the internet possibly. And I've just always been the kind of guy that I'm an open book to everyone that's right in front of me and my closest friends could ask me anything and I'll tell them anything. But I, I feel like, yeah, I don't know if it's, by design or if it's just kind of worked out that way or a little bit of both but yeah it's not there's not too much on me out there which i have no problem with i mean i i've like i have no uh shortage of interests or things to keep me busy in the day so i've never really thought about it or got too hung up about it but i do think it's kind of funny that there is almost nothing out there it's pretty great you look up like me and there's like a podcast of me from when i was like 15 or something you know what i mean it's like what like that's the only thing on that like what is going on who is this guy well we're gonna hopefully you'll let us you'll yeah, let exactly. us ruin it right we'll change now. it yeah, yeah i know it's, it's, it's probably about time yeah so one piece that i have on you historically and then we'll get into a bit of the origin story is you started playing at nine years old yeah i mean i i started playing the bass in the third grade so i are you nine in third grade i I, I don't you probably are yeah right? probably around that yeah but uh yeah, yeah, yeah you so, are wow okay yeah so i had played uh i know one of my family is a musician but they're all music lovers and my mom uh her first husband was a bass player she loves great music and my dad's the same way and so when i was in third grade i had started making some new friends and they were kind of these guys that had already been in a band as insane as that sounds. They were my same age. They must've started their band when they were eight. I have no idea. So they were like, we're in a band, whatever. I started hanging out with them and they didn't have a bass player or whatever. So I started kind of learning what the bass was. Then my mom ended up giving me a bunch of CDs or something for my birthday. And one of them was fresh by Sly and the family stone, which is like, you know, went on to be like my all-time favorite record and so I, I feel like she put that record on 
I was like, what is this instrument that I'm hearing? What is going on? What is this sound? And she was like, I think you're talking about the bass. And so we got me a bass and I joined their band the, the next day. We were in that band until I essentially quit that band to join Dawes. I mean, or what would become Dawes, but that was, but yeah, I mean, so I was in only a few bands in my whole life, but long runs for all of them. Okay. So uh, I have a, I have three kids. Uh, one of my kids is about that age. I, I, I think they struggle like just with piano, sure. let alone getting that, getting your, your, let's call it your left hand. If you're, if you play righty over that fret, fretboard of a bass, yeah. the strings, like, how I mean, I can't even imagine a, a, a nine-year-old playing that instrument. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely pictures of me that are they look hilarious. I mean, I, I must have been I I was tall for my age, not crazy tall, but I I was about the limit that you would need to be to hold a bass and you know and actually make it all the way to the to the F fret. And so I got a bass. I somehow fit it in my hands. It wasn't even a short scale or anything. It was just a regular bass, and then. Yeah, I mean, there's just these pictures of me sitting on a stool with this bass that's essentially covering my entire body. You know what I mean? I'm like <laughs> hidden behind. There's like a little kid's head popping over the top of a bass. And it's just pretty funny. But I was just one of those guys. I had taken piano lessons for maybe a couple months or a year before that. And I tried to play clarinet. And it was all these instruments that I, I – I, piano might be one of my favorite instruments in the world. I wish I was one of these guys that could sit down at a piano and just blow minds by themselves all the time. But – None of them ever clicked until the bass. It was just like, oh, this is the one for me. And then all the kind of physical trials that are a small child trying to play bass just didn't seem to be affected because it just felt like I had a connection to that instrument. Yeah, I mean, the other part of it is, you know, bass isn't, I always say like a, when, we, when I talk about business, I say, is this like a destination vocation? And so I was in marketing for many years and I'm like, marketers are typically people who like didn't like MBA school or didn't want to do law anymore. It's not like you wake <laughs> up and go, I want to be a professional marketer. And yeah, sure. bass is kind of like that, right? It's like, oh, there was already a guitarist. Oh, there was already a drummer. But you, at that age, the fact that like my mind is blown because you stuck with it. Like it's it's kind of a weird instrument where you're playing like individual notes, maybe walking a little bit. But yeah. There's not that much to keep the attention of a nine year old there. <laughs> yeah, I think it was one of these things where from the you know I I grew up I never listened I grew up on oldies radio I never was like in touch with the the songs and music of my own personal generation. So it's like I had been already at that age listening to you know Motown and Bonnie Raitt and all these things my mom would play me that were, were all very like groove oriented and I think I just really connected to the fact that it was like oh this is like and probably you know it's a, a similar to my own personality it's like are you I I just like being in the background and knowing that I'm in true control of the actual feel of the song and how groovy it is and you're what I'm doing might go unnoticed to most people except everyone in the band definitely notices you know when you have a bad bass player you everyone in your band knows you know and so it, it was just fun to kind of like yeah it kind of relieved a little pressure it allowed me to just kind of like you know not have to be up at a mic singing making eye contact you know like if I, I you know I never was like a big like public speaker or anything like that so it was probably kind of a nice social position in the band which is like you're everyone in the band's favorite guy and yet you can kind of like you know you don't it's not all resting on your shoulders 
publicly at least, but it kind of is resting on your shoulders musically, which is nice, you know. So where where is this happening? Where do you grow up? I know is it, it's in the state of California. Whereabouts? Yeah, in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I was born in like uh, the Chevy Hills area, which is like on the west side, and then uh, moved to the like Palisades, Santa Monica area. And, and when I was in elementary school, that's when I met that first band. And then uh, Taylor and the other guys from my band, they're all from Malibu. So we were close, but we never knew each other until, you know, 10 years later or something like that. And, and how, I mean, you know, you're serious about music as a young child, but how serious is the surroundings? Is it like extracurricular? Are your parents like, don't worry so much about sports? So when's the band jamming? Like, how, what was that like? Yeah, it was much more like that. I mean, no one in my, everyone in my family is some form of an artist. You know, they're in, my dad's a production designer. My mom was an artist, an art teacher, a film editor. So everyone's into the arts, and I we there's never been a, a sports game on in my house my entire life. No one, my dad, you know, we never. It would be Sunday, and we'd all be sitting around, and then at 5 p.m. realized that it was Super Bowl Sunday. You know what I mean? It was like, whoa, the Super Bowl's on. So they were always into arts and stuff. So I think very early, it, I definitely took bass lessons when I was a kid. You know, once a week, some guy named Ralph would come over and teach me a thing or two. But I definitely immersed myself in just like band culture at a very young age like it's from third grade on it was multiple days during the school week and then essentially every day during the weekend was band practice and we were just in a garage at the drummer's house and we just played all day and all night and then had a big sleepover and woke up and did it again the next day till one kid's parents decided they had been out too long and they had to get picked up you know so what kind of music is this? Is Are you doing covers? Are you doing originals? What's happening in these jam sessions? We were doing a lot of originals, which is kind of incredible. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't – the other guys in the band were also very, very talented. And definitely they had had a couple years on me. So I, I was kind of falling into my place. They were – you know, the guitar player was – he was writing songs and he could solo. And we were we were definitely compared to – what you would expect a third grade band to sound like, we were incredible. You know, we were a real sounding band. I mean, you listen to it now or whatever, and it sounds obviously like kids playing, but at the same time, there's real parts and, you know, there's sections to each song, there's bridges, there's melodies. It's a whole real thing. And that band, because we started so young, by the time we were in sixth grade or seventh grade together, we were like playing at the Roxy and we were doing real shows because we had just like, you know, you put the time in, even if you start really young after, you know, you start playing every weekend and multiple days a week with your band. Even if you start when you're nine, by the time you're 12, you're going to be pretty good, you know. S- strange sidebar. I had a bass teacher named Ralph, too, and I'm not joking. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so, so what kind of like what genre of music is it? Is it what we're hearing in terms of folk alternative rock stuff? What was it? I guess it, it was kind of, I mean, the, the the genre did change like you would expect, you know, we were kids. So it was like, you know, sometimes it would be, you know, we all liked like Rye Cooter, but then we also, then the singer would get really into like 80s music or something. So then it would go in some other completely synth direction when we were 13 and everything started getting really electronic and then it would kind of come back and then it would be like, oh, the, now the drummer is really into Faith No More, so like, let's try to make it really heavy all of a sudden. You know, it was just all over the place. Constantly changing the band name, even though it was the same band, and constantly changing kind of the genre of the music. You know, even if it was just like, we'd go to record 
a song and it would be one thing it'd be like whoa so your band sounds like a you know like a rock band now heavy rock and then the next song would be some crazy obscure ballad where we'd like get some person from our school to come play the violin on it and it was like it was all over the place can you circle back to what age you were you mentioned the, the you mentioned Ry Cooter and I'm just gonna it almost I almost had to be picked up off the floor with a spatula you're like <laughs> you're 10 years old and you know who Ry Cooter is really yeah I mean definitely I the, the guys that would be from my I knew it from my mom and then the other guys in the <laughs> band was all similar things they all had older siblings everyone just had a great they, they had people in their lives with great musical taste so we we truly did listen to good, good music at a young age, which was really cool. Yeah, and it was, you know, obviously you find out about other things, but the things we did know about at a young age are things that I'd still listen to today, you know? So you, you talked about your mom buying you your first bass. Do you uh, remember what kind of bass it was? Do you still have it? Tell of me about course, that bass. yeah. I remember, so I got, I told him I wanted to play the bass. My dad, who was working on a job at the time, his he saw his friend the next day. The friend's like, yeah, some guy came off the street yesterday into my office and said that this bass fell off a truck, you know, like whatever, the classic tale. So there was some red bass. It was a red Fender P bass. The guy was like, well, just loan it to your son so he can just see if he wants to actually put a bass before you buy him a bass, you know. So I had that for about maybe a month or so. And then uh, my first bass was an, a white-on-white Mexican-made Fender jazz bass, and I definitely i know where it is it's, i've loaned it to a friend of mine who i know still has it about once a year i find like some old picture of me in that year like in third grade playing that bass and i send him the picture and then he'll usually send me one back of the bass still like leaning in his studio and i did kind of different mods to it over the years it's got my name kind of carved in the back of the headstock like as if like a you know a fourth grader carved it in with like a pencil or something it like, just says Wiley like on the back of the headstock, and I changed a couple parts, but it was a great bass, and I definitely, it, it's still great. I, I would stand by it, and I played the majority of my young everything on it. It's amazing. Like that's amazing. Most people who I speak to, it's you know, it's some sort of cockamamie uh, ripoff of a Fender bass that they got with you know, the, like you can't even get the the string down to the fretboard the action's too yeah. high type of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but like it's it's amazing that like you out of the gates you're like on a fender that's pretty amazing yeah no it was awesome yeah and i think it was just because you know again like no one they my, everyone in my family isn't a musician but they all know cool people and so it's like you know if you you're one step away from a musician he's just gonna say get a fender so they got i mean it was like that's the cheapest fender you could get i mean it's not a squire but it's just a mexican-made jazz bass from whatever year that was and so but it, it was it's a great bass i mean the bass is still great it sounds awesome and it played really well it was definitely yeah it, it wasn't one of those ones where yeah you're like you pick up you know Jimi hendrix first guitar and you're like how do you even get a sound out of this thing like it was just a real instrument which was awesome and i think definitely also helped me because the rest of my band they were all playing on real instruments at the time you know it wouldn't have made sense for me to show up to rehearsal they had real drum kits and real guitars, you know, so I kind of needed it to jump in and catch up. So do you, do you like reflect back on that time and think not like it sounds like such an L.A. story? Like when you say it, I'm like, yeah, I live in Montreal. Like I don't think that that story ever happens. Like just having <laughs> people who know those types of people who like it feels like it's a real sort of cultural thing to me, at least when I hear it. Do you see it that way or was it, how do you? Yeah. I, I do see it that way. I mean, L.A. definitely those are, 
those are the perks of, I mean, I'm born and raised in LA. Both my parents, you know, my dad moved here when he was a really kid and my mom was born and raised here. So we're multi-generational in LA. And so you, you kind of do take for granted things like that. And then, yeah, as I get older, when I hear myself say stories like that and say like, yeah, you know, when we were in sixth grade, we used to go play at the Roxy. And it's like, <laughs> what? You know what I mean? And you, and you start thinking about that and you're like, first of all, how do you even get into the Roxy when you're in sixth grade? How do you get paid to play there? And how do you just play there? It's just so crazy. People think, you know, the Roxy is a, a place that people aspire to get to, or at least back then it definitely was. And it was like, I want to go to LA and I want to play the Roxy. But to me, it was like, the Roxy is just the Roxy. It's just the place in Hollywood where I hear that people play. So we kind of just figured out a way to make it happen. I was watching a YouTube video not that long ago about a drummer from Latin America, and he was talking how basically talent is a, is a joke. And he was showing videos of him over an eight-year progression of like you know playing drummer, being a drummer in high school, and like the real video. And then sort of that moment when he said, "I'm going to take this seriously and really think differently about how I practice." And it's just night and day. And his his theory or the video is like nine minutes long. Is basically that it's really all about practice and application that, you know, some people have some sort of gifts maybe, but the vast majority of us, you don't see the hard work, you just see the result. And as you were as you were telling me the story, I was thinking about that video and, and just my desire to ask you if you think you're a prodigy. And so I'm wondering where you sit in that. Is this just you were gifted with this talent? Is this just you just spent all of your time practicing? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely am not a prodigy. I've definitely been, I've played with and been surrounded by people that I would say are prodigies, which I think was kind of my secret weapon. I mean, I, I was just always, again, it goes back to like, no kids want to be the bass player. And usually every bass player is just a guitar player that couldn't get a gig, you know? And so I think for me, I was just always a bass player, which made it so I was I I was never gunning for anyone else's job, and so I always found myself in these great bands of people that were just so happy to find someone that was, you know, not trying to upstage them and take a bass solo in front of the guitar player. And so I was able to just kind of connect with all these amazing musicians. And you know, I mean, I I, I got kicked out of jazz band in high school. I, I was a terrible music student. I think all my bass teachers would probably say that I had really good time and feel but I just never was able to learn my music theory and maybe that's just because I didn't want to or I don't know what was going on but I think that my greatest skill in music has just always been to play as much as I can with amazing musicians and just kind of be able to do what I do to elevate them and therefore probably essentially make it seem like I, I'm better than I am you know what I mean because I, I there's guys there's a million guys that could play circles around me every member of my band is in a, a skilled trained musician way more than me and I, i'm just kind of more of a a guttural you know like i, I just feel it i'm i i'd put my feel up against any of the great bass players but if you asked me to take the bass for a walk over a charlie parker song i would just put the bass down i couldn't even keep up you know <laughs> so let's talk a bit about uh the band and I mean, people can just Google and, and YouTube sort of how the band came together. I'm more curious from your perspective. You're playing, you're moving along. What's your first interaction with these other human beings? At what point do you feel this is the right fit for you? What was that experience like just from your perspective as a bass player? Well, so I was in my childhood band from about third grade till, let's say, 10th grade. And then, you know, we were kind of, you know, used to being like, 
the hot shit of our area. You know, we were the best band in our high school because we were just we had been putting in the time. We were so practiced. And then I kind of started hearing about these guys that were went to a different high school down the road. And they were like apparently these insane musicians who were just amazing. And I was like, OK, so I, I got kind of I got a hold of a demo of one of theirs. And the band was called Simon Dawes. And then the demo kind of like blew my mind. I was like, oh, my God. Like, I thought that we were kind of advanced in our like, you know, arrangements and our just abilities to everyone. You know, re- it's not just a bunch of kids playing the root note on every instrument. It's like there are real parts going on in our in our music. And I heard that EP of theirs. and I just kind of like got my brain melted. I was like, this is so complex for how young we are. And it was just kind of blowing my mind. I went to a show, felt the exact same way. And then I ended up weirdly, that was about the time when my original band was kind of, you know, a couple of us were starting to drop out of high school. It was just nothing. It was kind of hitting a, a point of n- no return. And th- weirdly, that band, Simon Dawes, was looking for a bass player. But because, again, like I was just always kind of the guy in the background, they ended up trying out, I think, two other members of my band as their bass player. And they would be like, yo, we went and tried, like the singer of my band, I went and tried out to play bass for this band, Simon Dawes. And I was like, well, that's cool, whatever. And then he didn't get the gig for some reason. And then they tried out another dude in the band. He didn't get the gig. And then finally, I don't know what gave them the genius idea to just try the bass player of the band that they were trying every other instrument of. And I kind of went down. I met Taylor. I went to his house and I, I kind of just played through a bunch of these songs and it was just such a different, uh, you know, we had, my other band had just kind of, we were also just kind of like, you know, uh, a, a rowdy bunch of boys and, you know, but we would practice a lot, but we would also just hang out and fuck around and do crazy shit all the time too. And it was just kind of nice to switch it over to a new group. It was my first time really playing music with other people almost ever you know because i only really played with these same guys my entire life and it was just very liberating and and fun and like kind of like got my mind really working and i went home and was just kind of like shit like am i about to quit my band that i've been in for you know 10 years or whatever and join this band i essentially did and it was obviously a great decision it was one of the best decisions i've ever made and so i joined that band we immediately started going on tour. I dropped out of high school because we just had too many tours booked. And then that band ended up breaking up, but it became Dawes. Me and Taylor were the, the two members of that band that went on to start our band. So did you ever ask them, like, why didn't they ask to actually meet the bass player? I mean, that seems very deflating to me. I'd be like, what is going on here? A singer? Like, yeah, I don't know. I think it was just because of what I'm saying. Like, the other guys in my band were by far more, like, like virtuosos than I was like I was holding it down and I was playing great and I think that you know our singer guitar player who they tried out was like a legitimate great musician he could he can play bass and he can play guitar and he's really really good so I think they just kind of they were already kind of operating at such a high level Blake and Blake Mills and Taylor were both so advanced in music at such a young age and I think they were at first were kind of thinking like oh let's go for, you know, we got to find another guy that's on our same level, a guy that can play multiple instruments, a guy that can play, you know, that understands every bit of what we're doing and saying. And I think obviously in the end, they probably essentially realized like, oh, we have that already in this band. We have two of those kind of guys. Maybe what we need is just a kind of a guy that's will be able to hold it down with the drummer that 
isn't going to kind of make this music get too complex and to kind of rein it in and make it more uh, palatable. You know what I mean? So what age, like how old are you when this is happening? I think I met Taylor when I was 15. So in your brain, are you thinking, this is it, like I'm going to be a professional bass player, this is what I'm going to do? I mean, dropping out of high school, even in today's era, is still sort of a thing that I think most parents would be the, you know, like, I can't believe this is happening. Um, yeah, totally. Like, were, like, you're talking about how you're screwing around, but at the same time, were you very driven? It sounds like you're still very driven, though. Yeah, I mean, we. I was definitely, I, I was a... I, I hated school since the first day I started. I was just always one of these. I love to learn things, and I, I would always – I felt like I would, like, you know, a, a day hanging out with my dad in the in his studio learning how to do some skill could have been my favorite day ever, but a day in regular high school or middle school was, like, every day was, like, my nightmare. I was just like, I need to get out of here. I can't learn like this. It was just so crazy. I was – I butted heads with every teacher – but yet they still liked me. I was this kind of like annoying student who was like a terrible student. But the teachers like were like, well, I, if you like weren't in high school, we'd probably be friends. But instead, <laughs> you're my student and I have to kind of discipline you. But at the same time, like I get it like you're not you don't like it here. So what are we going to do? And I went to it was definitely a, you know, like a liberal arts high school. So it was very easygoing in that sense. But, you know, definitely ever, I'm I'm probably one of the few people to ever drop out of high school that went through that school you know it's it's a school that gets you into a great college it's you know it's one of those kind of schools and so I I was definitely driven I was more just like driven to do anything but be in school so it was like okay I I was I was a a little bit of an artist also at the time I I was I did band practice relentlessly it was kind of like I was just I, I was forced to be driven because I just didn't want to be doing what every other kid seemed to be doing which is like worrying about school and like where you're going to go to college. And to me, it was just like, okay, let's just any moment I can fill my day with something not school related. I love it. You know? So it was just all music all the time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so yes, I was driven, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of hard to wrap my head around the kind of person I was at that point. And definitely my, my principal was the guy who suggested that I drop out of school. He was a musician himself. And so the whole process kind of happened easier and less dramatic than it would for another person. We went on, we got a tour with Maroon 5. I took two weeks off of high school to go play stadiums with Maroon 5. And then I got back to school. And then at that point, it was like, if I hated school before, then you send a 15-year-old onto a, a stadium tour and then back into school, you're just in for it. Like I was the worst student of all time. I didn't bring a backpack. I never did a, I never did any homework ever again. You know, it was just like, Wiley, where's your homework? Didn't do it. It was just over and over again. Finally get called into the principal's office and he's like, listen, it seems like you really enjoyed going on tour. It seems like your band's doing well. High school's not going anywhere. Like, I'm going to call your parents. I think you should just drop out. And I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. And it happened and my parents were somehow on board because they're cool. I mean, I'm sure they were worried about things at the time, but they had also, they kind of also knew that I was essentially a professional musician already. I'd been getting playing paid gigs for years at that point, as many as I could. So I, everyone was kind of on board and everyone kind of risked it with me and it ended up working out totally fine, which is great. I would imagine having a God pass to Maroon 5 in your senior high school years is probably the greatest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. It was just like, yeah, it was insane. It was 
that that being the first tour we ever went on was just so hilarious and so like that just gives you the wrong idea of what it is to like you know it's like I always played in bands but it was always like oh we'll never get to go on tour until we're out of high school whatever and then you think like you know your first band tour is you're just piling in a minivan and sleeping on floors and then instead our the first couple tours that Simon Dawes ever got were all huge opening slots so we did Maroon 5 we did Incubus we did all these giant bands and then it was like I dropped out of high school. All right, now it's time for the band to do their first headlining tour. And we're like, oh, great. Tour is the best. All it is is, you know, sold out Staples centers and, you know, huge arenas. We went and got in a van, played to no one, slept on the floor, and it was just so funny. It was just the, the complete two ends of the spectrum as far as you could get from each other. It was like tours one, two, and three. It was hilarious. So, I mean, it's known in, in the business that the van is the make or break of whether or not these people are going to make it, they're going to survive as musicians, get along. Was it was it weird? What Did you have those moments or was it very natural because you have this success with Incubus and with Maroon 5 where you're like, there is something possible here, which again, you're sort of starting with a little more hope than most. A hundred percent. We're starting with a complete skewed sense of hope and, and so much. We're just like, wow, it's so easy to go on tour in a band. Those bands would all ask us to go on tour because we were in L.A. That was the whole thing. We didn't it wasn't like we went out and pitched ourselves for those tours. We'd get a call saying, hey, I just got a call from the bass player of Maroon 5. They want to take you guys on tour. And it's like we didn't even pursue that tour. It just kind of fell in our lap. And the same thing happened with Incubus. And then but definitely, I mean, that. so that was all still with Simon Dawes, and we did that in our van that Dawes ended up taking over. But yes, that that van ex- kind of experience is what broke up our band, Simon Dawes. So it definitely was make or break for us, and it, it broke us. It, we couldn't, me and Taylor were still totally on board to keep going, but that was the split we had with our band and guitar player, uh, Blake Mills. And so it was just kind of like crunched in the van, too much and and you know the van just is like a pressure cooker for any other issue that's going on in your life you know what i mean so if you have issues with other bandmates or you have internal struggles with your place in a band and how much you're being heard sit in a van for you know 10 hours a day for a month and none of those are going to be secrets anymore you know what i mean you're going to explode blake has retribution though he comes back to produce right <laughs> yeah yeah totally i mean again we're all still all so young i I there was definitely a time when I was really hurt and you know and mad at Blake and it was like you know I had just dropped out of high school then cut to six months later my band breaks up and I'm like what like I you know what I mean I felt because they were all a little older than me no one else had to drop out of high school except me to be in this band so they were they had all finished high school and I was kind of like obviously I didn't really care about high school but I was still just like whoa man like you know we moved into a house in the valley we were all living together in North Hills and I was like, now you're just breaking up the band and that's it. And like, what am I going to, am I moving back with my parents? What's going on here? And I was pissed. But then of course, like, you know, Blake's one of my best friends now. I, I, that was all, it was just me being young and, and kind of hurt by that situation. But after going on tour for, you know, over 10 years, it's like, well, yeah, like I get it, man. Tour is rough and especially in the beginning and it's not, for everyone, and I could never be mad at anyone who said, I don't want to go on tour anymore. I'd be like, I get it, man. You, you just want to like live at home in, a, in your own house and like have a, a girlfriend or a wife that you see every day. Like th- Those aren't unreasonable requests for a regular person, you know? 
Yeah, I, I'm reminded when you say that story of uh, I don't know if you ever saw the documentary uh, Seinfeld, comedian by for, with Jerry Seinfeld. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so there's the the famous joke where uh, I think it was who was it the Miller Orchestra. Do you, know, do you know the joke I'm talking about? We're basically, I don't think so. So they're in their tour bus middle of winter. It's like, I'm probably playing with a George Miller, the famous jazz musician orchestra. And they're, they're sort of, bus breaks down and they're sludging through the snow and they see off in the distance like a house and there's like a plume of smoke and all the Christmas hangers and the family's inside having dinner and one of the musicians looks at the other one and goes, who could live like that? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it just kind of reminded me of that. It's a, it's a different beast and animal. What, yeah, what? no, it's completely different. It's very weird to think about. Yeah, it's not one... It is one of these things where, you know, it's like kind of like an ongoing joke but like you... You could meet a guy, you know, it's like, let's say I'm at a dinner party and there's a guy that is in a band that I don't like or I have no connections to or whatever, but I know that the guy's been on tour for years and, and there is kind of this just unspoken, like, all right, like, I'll give you a pass. Like, you know, it's like you, you go through it also and you're, you understand my, our weird life more than anyone else here. You know what I mean? Even though we might not get along on any other aspect of our lives. And name dropping, it's the Glenn Miller Orchestra. It came to oh, me okay. as, as, you were, as you were speaking. Um, so, and what, what was the, did you have a moment? And I say that because, you know, Dawes is a big band. People know the band, they love the band. I'm a fan. Was there a moment for you? Was it like getting the record deal? Was it the first sort of tour that you're doing as headliners as Dawes? Was there something for you where you were like, wow, that whole craziness and this whole weird life of like these similar people in concentric circles? This it makes sense because you haven't mentioned like you know we're writing songs and working towards this deal. It felt like there was more touring and playing than writing and and original music. Yeah, well, I mean, as far as our band goes, and it's always been. I think, you know, when you have multiple actual songwriters in a band, it can obviously be great. It can also obviously lead to the breakup of a band, which is what happened with our old band. It was definitely dual songwriters when I joined, Blake and Taylor. And that was definitely one of the reasons the band broke up. You know, inevitably, someone wants to sing their song and they don't want you to sing their song or they want to sing this part or they don't think you can do this part as well as they can or whatever. And so I've always been extremely happy in the position that I've been in in all of my bands which is that I'm not writing the songs I'm writing the bass parts and I'm arranging the songs and by the time you know Taylor will write a song and then brings it to us and it's very acoustic based written on acoustic guitar or piano and it kind of it sounds beautiful but it doesn't sound anything like what it ends up sounding like and we kind of all get our creative juices going by by arranging the song which can obviously as you know be you know you could arrange a song as a ballad and you could arrange a song as a metal song and there's it'll completely change the song and that was always kind of enough for us and i kind of liked being like all right like i'm worrying about the bass feel and i'm worrying about the bass parts and i'm gonna let taylor worry about the lyrics and and the song structure because that's what he's obsessed with and so yeah, I was never too – I mean, I'm involved in the writing process and that I hear songs as they're being written, and if I have an opinion, I'll share it and it's listened to. But, yeah, well, to me, there was never one of those big moments. It was just kind of like a slow burn of the same thing. You know, Taylor would write songs. We would play them. We'd go on tour, and then we'd do it all over again every single day uh, for years and years. And the, the our growth was always so slow that – 
we never had that moment like, wow, we, I mean, we signed record deals and that was awesome. We did huge shows and that was awesome. And there were definitely amazing experiences, but none of them seemed like they were like the game changing experience to us. At least to me, it was more just like, wow, look back. It's been 10 years and we're a lot bigger than we were 10 years ago, you know? Yeah. It's, I just think of it more like, you know, like for me, I mean, I've had many things in my life, but like I remember like being in Manhattan and signing with my literary agent and then having that conversation with, you know, wound up being Hachette, which was a large book publisher and just sort of being like Canadian guy from Montreal, sort of looking at the Manhattan buildings sure. over me being like, I can't believe I just signed with a literary agent in Manhattan. Like it just, it, it was one of those sort of moments selling my business was another one for sure. Totally. But, but I wonder if, and I think about that because they're private, like, when I look at your trajectory, like if it were me and who knows, I, I, I sort of go like I think signing with Q prime would have been like, uh, these are the people who like built Metallica. Like they believe in us. Like to me, it's those weirder ones that the public may not know where you think, geez, this is really something that someone else really sees it too. Yeah, totally. And I think we, uh, to me, I guess if I was to think of those moments, they would all be the ones where we, we were asked to play with kind of like, old school legendary musicians that we grew up loving. And that was always like the one where you're like, well, shit, like we're playing with John Fogarty right now. It's like, we're playing someday never comes with the guy that wrote it from credence. And, and he's stoked on how it's sounding. And we're like, okay, that's, that's something like, that's a big deal. And the same thing with, we'd find ourselves, I'd find myself on stage with Jackson Brown playing, running on empty. And I'd look around and I'd kind of think to myself like, Okay, so there's people that are on stage right now somewhere in a Jackson Brown cover band playing <laughs> Running on Empty. In the bar, and would, yeah. yeah, and then I would look forward and I'd be looking at the back of Jackson Brown's head and I'd be like, well, I'm just like in Jackson Brown's <laughs> band. I, you know what I mean? It's not, it's no longer a cover. Like I'm, I'm in the band. Like It's like I get that. I always joke with my wife when I'm in like a grocery store, like some Jackson Brown song comes on. I'm like, oh, it's my old band. You know, it's, even though it's like a song yeah. from the 70s, but it's like, yeah, that's, that's my old band, Jackson Brown. Yeah, that's that's so kind of like, moments like that do it for me for sure. It's kind of like my life now. I, I used to do 60, 70 gigs a year, do a lot of public speaking. And now it's like you, you sign off a Zoom and, and there's no book signing. And I'm like, I wonder yeah. if my wife wants me to sign her book. You know, like, what is she? <laughs> the exact same. I feel you. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, yeah. We spent a lot of time, but we didn't talk about something that I'm also like equally fascinated with you about, which is. Gelber and Sons. You don't just play this instrument; you actually make them now. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so I, I know there was this Model One bass. I know there was this Model Two bass. Um, by looks of Instagram, Flea has a bass and likes playing it that you made. Um, yeah. You talk about yourself and your father working in his workshop. He's some kind of master builder, and you've got your skills. So. Talk to me about like why you are building these, what you want to do with this. People are loving your instruments. Does that surprise you? What's happening here? Uh, well, I guess the the long story short would be like my my dad is yeah one of these guys who you know he worked in the film industry, which generally, if you know people that worked in that industry in the art department, they're kind of like just these guys that can do anything and they learn every skill they could mud a drywall they could fix your electrical and your wall they could build a lightsaber they could you know they, they can just do anything that's like kind of the nature of that business and so I definitely grew up with him 
you know, he'd got, and we always had the upstairs of our house was a double studio of his. He had every, he had all sorts of esoteric tools. And it was one of these things where you could just tell he could, he loved to take everything apart and he loved to fix everything. Half the stuff in our house, you know, instead of being thrown away, was just kind of had these amazing weird repairs on them that he would do. He'd be like, dad, I want to buy a skateboard. He'd be like, well, let's go make a skateboard. So we'd go out and cut wood and make the skateboard. You know what I mean? It was just all things like that. And he would modify our toys as a little kid and you know everything was just a cool custom kind of thing and I think that when I was younger I I definitely was always into it and I always liked that and then maybe when I was about you know when I started going on like real tour maybe I was 18 or something and I was kind of like you know no longer like a little kid on tour and I I kind of realized like oh I kind of have that in my brain already too like I I understand how things work and I also love to learn how things work and I love to take them apart and I love to build them and I love the idea of everything in my life kind of being custom made by me for me you know so as time went on I was you know I started making cables and I would make electronics and I would all the guys in my band played my guitar cables that I built and that was just like me learning how to solder and it got us to there then it was like okay uh, let's see what else, like what kind of little percussion does Griff need? Okay. You want something that shakes, but has a handle on it. Okay. I can think of something. So I'd, you know, get a bunch of epoxy and a bunch of wood and glue together some crazy thing. And as that started going on and I kind of started treating that as my hobby on the road, like, you know, a lot of guys in my band, they could read books for, you know, six hours while we have a day off. And for me, I started accruing a lot of tools on tour and I would start, repairing and improving and building on and adding on to all of our gear and then eventually I got home after one of the tours and I was talking to my dad and I you know I kind of got a nice selection of vintage bases at that point in my life and different ones that I love for different reasons and he was kind of just like why aren't we built you know why don't we building a base so you know he's never built an instrument before I'd never built it but he was like you know if it's a thing we can learn how to build it and I'm sure we can build it you know what I mean it's like it's not an instrument is not the most complex kind of woodworking you can do, you know? So we kind of went into the garage, started brainstorming, and we ended up just kind of making this crazy base that we were kind of like, okay, well, worst case, like, it'll look good. We know that. We know we'll be able to make it look good. Maybe it'll sound terrible, but well, we know we can make something look cool. So we built it. I plugged it in, and I was like, holy shit, like, this is amazing. Like, I, I just, it's, we... I was like, that must have been a fluke, but like, let's not argue with it. This thing <laughs> plays incredible. And from that moment on, it was the only bass that I ever played. I put down what was then my favorite bass that I'd been playing for eight years, and I never really picked it up again. I was like, I only want to play this one that I built. I felt like it was like the sword in the stone. You know what I mean? I felt like it was like I was the only one that could feel like this bass was made with my hands, and therefore like it's perfect for me in every way. And so that went on for a couple of years. And then it was kind of like every time I would be back off tour, I'd be like, well, how much time do we have off? Okay, we got three weeks off tour. Is that enough time to make a base? So then we'd, we'd go back in and we'd try to improve on what we did before. And then that just kind of kept happening over and over again. And then eventually one of the times I was home, I was like, you know what? I want to see if I can make a guitar. So I made a guitar and I gave it to Taylor. And I was like, kind of like, you know, I can't even play a chord on a guitar. That's the truth about my life. So I was like, I was like, I, it looks cool, but like, does it play good? I don't know. And Taylor picked it up, and he he loved it. And he brought it on tour, and it was all he was playing for a while. 
And so it just kind of started ramping up from there. So at this point, I think I built 40-something guitars and maybe 15, 16 basses at this point. And that's just what I do. So is it just you and your dad, or do you have people now? Is it a real business? How do you no, see I mean, it? As of now, it, I mean, it actually, it, it used to be me and my dad when I lived closer to him in L.A., and then uh, it, and we would work together. We still work together all the time, and, but, uh, but it's really just me at this point. I'm okay. doing almost everything by myself because I finally got a real shop a couple of years ago that's, like, not – I used to be, like, every – I would rent a house with an extra room and turn the other bedroom into a tool shop. And then I would rent a house with a garage and I'd turn the garage into a shop. And now I got like a real industrial space that's like bigger than all of them. So I'm really set up to just do everything. And yeah, it's essentially a a one man operation over here. I mean, I use different people and he'll help me if I need help with something or not. But yeah, they're all getting made just kind of by my own two hands over here, which is why the the rate of them is so odd. And if I get caught up building something else for that's non-instrument related, there won't be guitars coming out for a month because I'm just busy. You know what I mean? But then I get into guitar mode and I start cranking out guitars. And then, yeah, and I, I, I really enjoy doing it. So it's kind of like, I, I don't even think about it necessarily like work. It's like I would be modifying and, uh, and building instruments even if I wasn't selling them, that's what I do for the bases. Really, the, the it's rare that I really sell a bass because when I make them, I kind of like pick them up and I'm like, I don't want to sell this thing. I love it. The guitars are so easy for me to sell because I don't play guitar and so I I can't really get attached to them. You know. <laughs> so are you getting like orders or are you just like how's this working? Yeah, I mean honestly, it, it it just somehow is working in a very crazy way. We are definitely getting orders, and that's, I mean probably. Out of like the 45 I've made, I'd say like 30 of those are, are just to complete strangers, ordered by strangers. And then maybe, you know, like 10 of them are to like people, friends of friends in L.A. And then probably five or six of those are to Trevor and Taylor in my band, just me giving them to them because I want them to play them. Because like this Rattocaster bass looks really good. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Man. <laughs> are you playing it? Do you love it? Yeah, I, I love all the real basses that I love are like my main. I don't know if you've seen a picture of me playing it all red. It's like a red on red bass, and that's what I usually play the last couple of years. And that I think is the model five, I'd say. But I and so during quarantine early on, I did make myself four new replicas of that bass, all for myself and never to be sold. So I spent like all this time and money making four different colored ones, but all the same pickups, all the same style. So now I took what was my ultimate favorite bass ever, which is that red one that I've been like, ever since I built that, I don't even play the old ones that I built. This is the only bass I love. It's my favorite thing. And so I decided what's better than having one of your favorite bass than having five of them, you know? And and tell me about the bass that I see Flea playing on your Instagram, which is Gelburn Sons. How did that come to you? That's a, well, well, Flea is my father-in-law. I don't know if that. Oh, I didn't un- know that. Okay, yeah, cool. And I don't think anyone knows that. I think that's kind of just a, again, if the internet knew more about me, it would probably come out sooner. But yeah, he he's my father-in-law and I've, I grew up with his daughter. I've known my wife since we were kids. And so uh, that was just a, a birthday present that I made for him. Oh my God, what a crazy story. 
Yeah. That's a, okay. So that's your wife shooting the video, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. No nepotism. That's fine. We like that. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and again, if we're going to talk LA, that, that would be a classic LA story. You marry Flea's daughter. That's great. Yeah. And we went to high school together. That's how we met. Hilarious. So I can't let you go without talking about your new album. I got a million. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your, your, your management and PR company only wanted you to do this to talk about the new album. And I did everything sure. but. So right, I apologize. But like I, ju- I find you so fascinating. Uh, brand new album. Good luck with whatever. Which, by the way, the visuals look great. Song looks great. It's coming out. We're recording this. It's coming out really soon. So so it'll it'll be out. I'm just I'm curious more about how it feels to be sort of like staring down the barrel of, of a new album. And as we're sitting, I don't know if we're at the beginning of this pandemic, the middle or the end, who knows? Exactly. Um, and I know you're you're a person who loves to play and be out there live. So can you? sort of wrap up like what's happening right now because it feels kind of strange to release an album now touring seems really i mean it's opening up a little bit but seems really tough to do now how, how are you approaching this whole thing it's definitely extremely weird and obviously nothing that we've ever dealt with as a band we're so used to just being like another year put a new record out and just go on tour hard and i think that you know, obviously we had recorded this record kind of a while ago because we're just usually we're so busy touring that anytime we have we see on the map that we have, you know, a couple months open, we'll try to book recordings. Even if we have a new record that isn't even out yet, we'll try to record the next one if we have a gap there. So we did this one and it was just planning on coming out. And then all this stuff happened, obviously. And we're we're just trying to kind of figure out what there is to do. Obviously, we started doing a, we did a live stream show that was obviously really enjoyable to play for the first time with my bandmates that we hadn't played together in so long but at the same time obviously it was completely weird and not the live music experience that any one of us are used to you know having but we're just kind of taking it day by day and seeing what that means maybe we got to do more of those maybe we'll start doing outdoor shows all these people are doing drive-in shows but i don't know if they've really figured that system out yet it's it's totally weird and Obviously, I really feel for the band. I mean, we're, there's many bands infinitely bigger than us. But as you know, there's also a million bands infinitely smaller than us. And, I, and we were one of them for years. And I, that's the, the real struggle. Luckily, we're, you know, we, we need to go out there and work as much as the next guy. We got bills to pay, but we're not, you know, we're not living show to show like we once were. And so I really just feel for those bands, for the bands that were playing locally and going on their first tour and we we used to go on tours and we get paid fifty dollars a night and we would all sleep on the floor and it was like if that's what if that's the point in your career that you were at then it's just kind of devastating so i'm just trying to you know also reap the benefits of this whole thing which is that i've never ever had so much time in town since i was a kid you know it's like yeah i I haven't been on a plane since february it's bizarre yeah which i and you know and i love I love playing music. I don't know if I the aspect of touring that I really don't like is all the travel, obviously, and a lot of the kind of downtime that's hard to fill. As you can probably tell now, it's like I have this giant shop, and like I I have no problem. I've been in my shop seven days a week throughout all of quarantine. I I've been prolific with the amount of stuff I've been building and and skills I've been learning, and I have one room set up with tools and another room set up with bases, and so I'm just like I'm like. I, I'm loving that aspect of it, but then obviously it just, you know, that can't last forever, but it is kind of just a strange 
view, it goes back to what we were talking about before. It's just like, oh, is this what regular people's lives are like when they don't leave town constantly? And it's like, <laughs> it's also kind of nice. But then I also got to stop and think like, no, the only reason I'm able to kind of have these amazing creative days in my shop is because I usually leave for six months, go work. And then when I have time off, it is true time off. There's no, I don't have a day job to go to. So right now I've kind of been just reaping the benefits of that and, and loving it. But I mean, when we finally plugged in to play that show, the live stream we did, it it was a wild feeling. It was like, Oh my God. I also totally forgot about this aspect of my life that I love, which is just like live music with my bandmates. And it was such a weird invigorating feeling that was so crazy yeah and it's weird because there are bands that are already sort of given dates for 2021 when i went to your site there there wasn't any on the dawes uh tour dates so i mean like again like i i'm just like getting up on stage and speaking and again i do a lot of virtual too but the truth is as you know there's something about you being in a room with me being in the audience that makes the music the music of course so I mean, is it a, like for me, it's been pretty tough. Has it been tough? I mean, you're, you're keeping occupied, but at the same time, the Dawes is a live band. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think, yeah, that, that part is definitely tough. And I think we're, yeah, we're just more confused by it than anything. It's like, we've just never, we've been so busy for so long. And we, we, you know, a lot of bands you hear, you know, they go on tour, then they're just like, I'm going to take a year off of tour anyway. But we've never done that. So it's just so foreign to us to not, playing so much live and yeah i think we're just all kind of just like confused and obviously you know it's like there's massive issues going on in this world that don't concern a dawes show happening but we're yeah we're just kind of like just kind of waiting to see what happens i mean we're as soon as we can play we are going to be ecstatic to play and we're not going to play when it's not when it's not time to do it yet and we're just going to you know figure out what we need to do to kind of get those creative juices flowing in the meantime maybe we go record more now that we're home we just start recording and record our next three records during all this stuff and then they just come out then we'll we'll figure out ways to kind of make sure that we're still playing and doing that but yeah we definitely all miss the aspect of playing a live show no doubt well as the album title says good luck with whatever then (laughs) exactly Hey, Wiley, I can't thank you enough for your time. I mean, it was an amazing journey for me because, like I said, a fan of the band and getting a chance to talk to you and realizing I don't really know your story. And it's, it's, it's so fascinating and unique and crazy that you were that young when you started. So thank you so much for sharing. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, my that. pleasure. Nice talking to you. And I would say let people know where they can find you. But, I, I mean, I think the best thing we should tell them is, is check out Gelburn Sons on Instagram. That's probably the best game, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. All right, cool. Thank you, man. Talk to you soon. Uh-huh.